it's the sense of giving. I'm no good in front of people. I'm no good as a waiter. Um, but I'm great at creating a dish to go out to them and then coming out and saying hi. That's why, I, that, that, that's my enjoyment of it. In three decades of cooking and running restaurants, Jeff Schroeter has seen it all and done most of it. Perhaps best known for his time at legendary Sydney restaurants Bistro Moncur and Bayswater Brasserie, he's also cooked in London, Switzerland and New York and has recently launched Beckett's in a space with a lot of history in Glebe. I'm really thrilled to be talking to him today. Jeff, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's great talking to you. Um, I was really charmed by something I read that you said about Beckett's, which is that you know, you weren't going to make a lot of changes straight away. You were going to let the building tell you what it wanted to do. Um, tell me about that, about walking into a space that has a lot of history. It's, um, it comes from uh, my reason for cooking, actually. It's, you, you feel it. You feel the space. You feel the food. And then you work out how to present it. And each kitchen and each restaurant I've had, it's always been different and you've always cooked differently. And this one, I was just waiting for it to tell me how I should be cooking. Um, and it, it kind of then becomes one with the building more. It, it's a bit esoterical, but it's a feeling you get. Well, I mean, to me as a diner, I love that idea because I feel, I mean, food is so much of its place. And I, I guess food that's, that begins by trying to be responsive I feel like that's just going to resonate from beginning to end yeah it's uh, I, I don't it, it's instead of me preaching it's telling me and um, and, and then it, it, it changes it it tests your knowledge and your experiences from everywhere else and just it, it's trying to tell you to come up with something slightly different or something better or you know try it this way and so you're always improving you're always striving to improve. Well, t- tell us about Beckett's. I mean, what is the space and, and what has it told you? Well, Beckett's, quite funnily, it, it's a building I saw when I first come back to Australia. I was in Sydney and, and we went across there for a wine tasting and I walked into this building and I was just flabbergasted in glee going, where the hell, where did this come from? And it's a subterranean um, sandstone building that was actually dug out by an eccentric dentist who owned it back in the 80s. He hired two master stone masons and they dug out two floors. They moved the house slightly up and back and dug out all the dirt and bought a reclaimed um, church abbey that burnt down in the back alley and used all that sandstone and, uh, and brickwork, so it's all been reclaimed. And spent 14 years building the thing um, and then opened it as Darling Mills, which become a very famous um, food, um, food to paddock to food uh, to plate uh, restaurant. I mean, that is a unique story. So, I mean, what are you doing there? What have you done to the space well, and what, what yeah. kind of restaurant have you created? Well, quite funnily, I've been looking for a restaurant for a few years. I was more focused in the city. Um, and then my now business partners, our kids went to school forever in Ultima, which is near Glebe, and they just rang me out of the blue 
and said, hey, we've um, saw this police sign went up. They live in Glebe. They're Glebeites all their life. And they just said, you know, they got married there. They love the space. Go and have a look at it and see if you're interested. So um, they've been at my house a few times doing dinner parties. I cooked a vanilla lobster for them once that they've still remembered to this day. And they just thought it would be a good idea to do a restaurant. Um, Wendy... My business partner, she's a playwright, one of Australia's best playwrights. She just got back from Greece, um, doing all the open amphitheatres in summer over there. Um, and she just thought you know, Glebe was right for a restaurant now. So went along to the space, went through the front door with a um, real estate agent, and the building just gave me a hug. It's been empty for a year and a half, and it just gave you a warm hug just at the front entrance by walking in and just went, wow, okay. And then um, went, what I usually do is go through the bones of the building. So from food in to food out to garbage to work, you know, flow, and all of it was there. It was all built properly. And so I thought, it just told me and said, let's do something. So um, I had no plan, had no idea of what I was going to cook. And we went from there. And, I mean, how would you describe the the menu direction? Like, what are you doing there? Um, I'm bringing back my childhood cooking, my apprenticeship days, basically. I started my apprenticeship in Restaurant Baguette, a famous French restaurant in Brisbane. Um, some of the dishes hallmark from back then that I've never cooked since then. Um, and it, it's coming back to uh, food that makes you feel good is what I could describe it as. It just, you eat it and go, wow, I just feel good eating that. Uh, do you think that that, you know, return to food that you've cooked in the past, do you think that's a you thing or do you think that's a culinary culture thing? It's, ooh, uh, no, I think we are re- remembering the past again. Um, I think COVID brought a lot of that on. Um, to remember the good old days. But um, it's also called, but comes back to a sense of occasion where you go to a restaurant and it, it, I love catering to senses of occasion. And so you need food that just goes, well, that, you know, that's what I, I don't cook at home. And that's more what I'm cooking at the moment. Just, just take me there. Like give us a couple of dishes. What, what would you feed uh, me if I came by? Came by? Oh, where would we start? Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I've just picked up these Bellin oysters from Tasmania that are wild harvested Bellin oysters. They're like an Angassi. I've never seen them before. And they're quite like They're 10 years old and they're hand-dived. Um, and the, the person flew up from Tasmania and walked in my kitchen with my fishmonger and just opened them on my bench and it just blew me away. I tasted it and it was so clean. The oyster, because I've had ingassies before that are quite meaty and briny, but these are so clean and delicate. They're gorgeous. So I'd start with those. You'd only need two. Um, then I'd probably go on to a one of the dishes from my apprenticeship days was the um, escargot on cocotte snails that um, I used to make my first job as an apprentice is um, putting them in the shell. They'll tip over. They'll make a mess. It would be hard to eat, hard to make, and would sell so many. So I've never cooked snails since that day, since my apprenticeship days, because um, it reminded me of all the pain 
of doing them. But this what? But then back at the restaurant, just told me, put snails on the menu. It'll work here. So I came up with instead of putting them in shells, I put it in a ceramic dish with all the ingredients, and then cover it with a puff pastry lid and and um, put it in the oven that way. And it's easy for us to make, and it's easy for the customer to eat. And it's just walking out the door. It's fantastic. And so I, I never thought I might sell six, I thought, you know, a night. But now I'm selling 20s a night. It's just amazing. Um, then I'll probably go to a strawberry foie gras, which was made by accident in New York on a Sunday when we ran out of food. Um, usually we do it with caramelized figs or uh, grapes or something like that. Um, but this one, we only had strawberries in the fridge on a Sunday. So we thought, shit, what do we do? We um, poached them with a little bay leaf and a little rosemary in a sugar syrup and then roasted it and then seared the foie and put that together with a aged balsamic vinegar. And the three simple ingredients is like a marriage. It's you got the s- sweetness from the strawberry, you got the acid from the balsamic and then you got the fat from the um, foie gras and the sensations just magic oh, I mean it's I'm feeling pretty sated with those rich flavors but I feel like you're gonna give me something else What's oh next? yes yes <laughs> then I'll probably then I'll probably go depending on the weather I cook to the weather so if it's a little chilly or something I'd go to the buller base which is um, a dish I used to cook back at Moncur days. It's more from Damien Penelay days when I worked with him. And um, it's just the richness and the flavour of the, the stock that you make before you even add the seafood. It takes six hours to make. But the, it's just so hearty and so warm that you just you forget about any chill outside. It's just beautiful. And then... then yeah, oh, we could go. Oh, I'm playing around with some uh, full blood Wagyu sirloin that I char grill, and it just melts in your mouth when you cook it, when you eat it. It's this is again so delicate. So all these they're all different flavor profiles, but they're not overfilling and weigh you down. You actually feel better after you eat each one. Oh, definitely feeling better hearing about each one. So, yeah, I absolutely believe you. Um, Jeff, we've sort of dotted our way through your long and illustrious career, but do you want to um, give us the backstory? Like where did this love of food all start for you? Well, I actually didn't know I was going to be a chef. Um, I grew up in a little town called Walla Walla, 600 people. I was related to half the town. 52 first cousins on my father's side so they were big families back then farming it's all farming district and um i left school early and because i was given a job as a, a, a apprentice um builder carpenter and so i was building houses and auditoriums and so forth as an apprentice and then the whole building industry fell apart back in the late 80s right? it was 88 i think and so I got disheartened with that. And then I thought uh, I'd go to sunnier quarters. Um, myself and my cousin decided to go to uh, Brisbane. We thought there was a beach there. So we drove up to Brisbane, found out there was no beach, and uh, wondered what we are going to do with our lives. And something tweaked in me that, oh, 
why don't I give cooking a go? And I had no idea why. So I went, found a job in a cafe and quite liked it. And so then I hunted for an apprenticeship and got one in uh, the best restaurant there to start my cooking career. And I still don't know why, but tracing back to then, the reason I was is, again, I was remembering my childhood growing up, running around all my um, auntie's uh, legs when we're cooking for occasions. So back in Wally, you'd have a 50th or a wedding or a 21st. And so all the grandmas got together and started cooking in these big homestead kitchens. And I'd always be running around their feet and the men will be outside barbecuing, drinking beers. The women will be all in the kitchen putting everything else together. And I just loved going, running around, licking the bowls. And it was a sense of occasion I loved. It was a gathering of people with food. And you'd sit down, there'll be tables just full of food, from roast turkeys and chickens to the lamb to quails. And you'd just sit there and eat all afternoon. And then you'll get to dessert, which was a fun part. So I think that rubbed off on me. Uh, but I didn't know until later, that's why I cook now. It's a sense of occasion. And how did your career progress from that, that first restaurant in Brisbane? Well, Brisbane was great. It was because the the um, the chef was also a teacher at TAFE, and so he's he's very good teacher. He was French. Max Matter was his name. Uh, a lot of respect for him, and he not nurtured um, young apprentices and so forth to help them through. Um, and so I was always very thankful that I started with him. Um, he gave me the work ethic that you needed for a kitchen that um, I didn't know I needed at that stage. And then from there, went came down to Sydney after my apprenticeship days and I uh, worked for uh, Serge Dancero at the um, at the uh, hotel here. Oh, what was it? I even forget now. Uh, and worked for Serge. And he taught me the love of ingredients from the farmer. There's ducks come in from the farmer, the lettuces. He introduced a lot of lettuce that Australia never saw, had before. Um, Serge was the one that instigated all that to come in and get growers to grow it. So I learned how a chef can interact with a farmer and develop food as you know, and, and brings the whole food cycle up with it. Then from there, I went to Gold Coast and worked for Herbert Klinkenhammer, um, which is another uh, respected name, very disciplined, very, very strict and disciplined, which was a little harsh at some times, but um, again, showed me the discipline of working as a kitchen, in a kitchen. And um, from there, I could jump and jumped over to Savoy in London, which I did for a few years and um, started progressing through Europe then. Wow. I mean, some, yeah, some really amazing names already. And I think, was it the Regent Hotel that Serge Dancero was at? I think in the late 90s he went there and just a real, I guess, a landmark Sydney restaurant. Um, it's really interesting. It seems like you had this, an interesting, perhaps for you it worked, like this balance of, you know, discipline. Sounds like a little bit harsh at times, but also really nurturing mentors that helped you through this early stage of your career. Exactly, and that's what the industry does need. Um, yeah, it, it was fun times, it was hard times, but also it showed you the work like, work needed to to cook. It, it, it needs discipline. 
Mm. And so what happened in Europe and, and from those days? Oh, then going to the Savoy was a real eye-opener. It was the hardest kitchen I've ever worked in. It was the most physical kitchen I've ever worked in. There was fist fights in the kitchen at times. There was lots of things going on. But, but just on a grand scale, there's 80 chefs in one kitchen. Wow. You're producing 2,000 meals a day. It's just full on. From 6.30 in the morning, you have to get there and try and get your pots and pans before anyone else because you won't get them back. And then um, and you're leaving at 11, 11.30 at night. It, it, it taught me a lot, again, on what it takes to cook. I mean, by this time, Jeff, did you feel like you were... Did you know what you were aiming at? Were you just soaking up all the experiences? You know, was it strategic at all or were you just on for the ride? I was on for the ride, the adventure. I was. I, I got to London by a container ship. It took uh, four <laughs> months travelling around. Yeah, it was a Wilhelmsen container ship that uh, circles the globe. And um, I had an inside contact to get on as a worker weight. You can work on it for free travel on board. Uh, and... So I hopped on there, Norwegian crew, uh, Norwegian captains and so forth, and you have your chef on board. But the Norwegian captain found out I was a chef. So when we got to Miami and so forth, he would send out the boat and bring back live lobsters and we'll be cooking live lobsters around the fishing, the, the swimming pool on the back deck of the container ship for all the crew. And so, well, so that was an adventure. And then... Um, I didn't know if I was getting off in London or I was going to Sweden, where the ship originated from, and then I decided to get off in London and walked into the Savoy for a job as I was broke by then. And um, so it wasn't planned, but what was planned is I'd always strive to work in the best place possible I could get into, always striving to work for the best places. Um, And... I'd stay longer if could get on with the people in charge of it as well, meaning that you can always work in the best place, but sometimes they don't suit you as where they are in their life cycle. So, no, it wasn't planned. The only thing was that I was trying for the best places. What were some of the other great places that you worked at over the years? Where I went from all the classic cooking and the Australian cooking to the Savoy, then I went to New York. That then changed what I was doing. It was the same classic teaching and training and building blocks of food, but it was brought to modern times where it was fresher, it was, it was more vibrant, it was alive. It's the first time I actually ate salmon and tasted salmon for the first time in my career. I've eaten it every, cooked it, eaten it everywhere. But the flavour profile that this one dish gave me just blew me away. I just tried it and said, I cannot believe how good that is. So working for Jeffrey Zakarian at the Royalton Hotel, he was uh, um, the first American to make sous chef at the at – uh, uh, Lutece, which is another famous French restaurant. All the restaurants were all, all run by French. All the executive chefs, the head chefs, the sous chefs were all French. He was the first American to actually make it as a sous chef in one of these restaurants. So he he's a forward thinker, classically trained, 
but he had a different combination profile of putting dishes that make him sing. And I inherited a lot from him. Uh, the salmon, I still do that salmon, poached salmon tartare, which you know, doesn't, uh, you're not meant to poach a salmon tartare, but you do it quickly and lightly. And the flavor profile just sings. So there was my most inspirational place I ever worked. Um, stayed there for a few years. And that's where I met my wife, my future wife from then. And from there, then I went to um, Switzerland and worked over there, which was strange again. It was more learning the German side of cooking in Switzerland. And then did you come back to Australia from there? Yeah, then then I come back, um, come back in 95 and connected with a few chefs that we used to work with at the Regent. One was at, uh, called The Edge. It was just a pizza joint that was doing great things with food as well. Um, stayed there for a little bit and then got into Monker uh, to work with Damien. And that was his recipe knowledge is brilliant. And um, skill level of that kitchen was extraordinarily good. And just uh, the amount of um, – it just brought me back in Australia again of lifting that level where Monker was. Well, I think Damien Pignolet is such a key figure in Australian cuisine. And, I mean, do you think that that was a restaurant where, you know, we became a bit more confident in the ingredients here and, you know, the, this idea of producing – we didn't have to copy as much as you know as much as we had been. It was our own food. Yeah, well, that, that's exactly right. He also it was nice getting a kitchen which is still classic in style, but it was still modern in style as well. And using ingredients that I didn't know Australia had. And so I was away for five years, and when I come back, I just went, "Wow, this is fantastic!" And then it was starting to dawn on me that you know where I wanted to go with uh, my career um, in I was getting to a stage where I was ready to have my own ideas in, in food from, and from what I learned from overseas as well as back here. And so that was, the, that was more pushing me to go, well, okay, let's see what I can come up with now. I mean, it's, it's really interesting. You know, there's a lot of, you know, head chefs in their 20s, et cetera, these days. Uh, you know, pr- progress seems accelerated and partly that's staffing shortages, partly that's, I don't know, people with a fire in their belly. But it's really interesting, you know, you'd been cooking for a long time before you felt, you know, that you started to feel like you had, you wanted to do your own thing. Yeah, yeah which everyone's different. There's some brilliant chefs that just got a natural feel. Some, you know, they're very methodical. I was just, yeah, I was taking my time because I was also taking breaks in between all these places and taking a six months off and then travel and so forth so I wouldn't burn out because I'd seen a lot of chefs burn out in, in their 20s or by the time they got to 30, they couldn't walk after because of the bad posture or their bad uh, shoes that they had back then and so forth. So I learned a lot. I used to play Aussie Rules, so I learned a lot on you need to keep your body in top shape and so cooking is the same thing it's very physical it, it's almost like an endurance it, it's a marathon and it's not where you get there in five years it takes 20 years or you need to still be able to stand and cook all day and that's the hardest thing to do so um, I always made sure one I had proper footwear two I took breaks 
whenever I could to go, you know, explore the rest of the world. And I'd work hard for a couple of years and work easy for a couple of years in, in style of I walk into a kitchen that's very demanding and be there for a few years, learn all I could and then go to somewhere that's a bit easier so you can regroup again and you wouldn't burn out. So that's quite important. Yeah, I mean, it seems extraordinarily enlightened. I feel like those conversations have only been, you know, about work-life balance, for example, you know, have only been... Um, you know, in the public arena for, yeah, a short time. But it's, it's interesting that you identified that those rhythms as important to you and your longevity. Yeah, I think that rubbed off on me and all working for these mentors kind of rubbed off on you. you. You see them at the later stage and where they are and the mistakes they shared with you and the pluses they've shared. So it kind of rubbed off me. And so, yeah, I, I took my time. I was in no hurry. I didn't know exactly where it would fit. Um, to this day, I still don't, which is quite interesting. But, you know, <laughs> it's always fun to find out. So where did the path take you after Bistro Monker? Um, then uh, an English gentleman who lived in Hong Kong came back to Mossman and he bought the old Trezini's restaurant in Mossman and we turned it into Iguasu. He wanted to do a restaurant. And my name was thrown in there as a head chef, and that was my first head chef's role. And um, I got the position. I must have been 28, 29, I think, at that stage. 30, yeah, somewhere around there. And um, opened my first kitchen. I flew in my uh, my former sous chef that I worked under from Brisbane. I, he came down and worked under me and brought some other people and... Um, Picked up Nadine, who was at La Gavroche, that came back to Australia as well, a very f- famous pastry chef. And we hopped in the kitchen and just worked out, okay, what are we going to do? And build Iguasu from there. Um, also did a, a sushi section in the back, which is the first time ever for me. Um, I had no experience in it. I hired a great sushi chef. So we had different concepts of food, from French to sushi, um, yeah, and it went quite well. And it was my first eye-opener as a restaurant. Lucky it wasn't my money. That's all I could say because it cost a bomb. <laughs> <laughs> what lessons did you take forward from that experience? Yeah, I learned a lot because in the end it did go bankrupt after I left, uh, a while after I left. But um, it was, wasn't plain that had had no direction that started swapping and changing directions to suit it it was the wrong location for the wrong fit for the wrong style restaurant was good kitchens were good it just didn't work um which a lot of restaurants do the same so i i, I think it, you're at, you are what you your owners are basically in a restaurant it's their direction and um, this one wasn't the right direction, I felt. So I learned a lot of things of, okay, it's still pretty hard when you get to the top. I mean, maybe they didn't let the building speak to them. Yeah, yeah, they were dictating a lot. But, yeah, it was a great building. It had history. Trezini's, it was built properly. Um, yeah, it just didn't have the right feel somewhere. Um. I feel like we could talk for hours, Jeff, but I would love, I would just love to get your perspective on 
jobs and skills and staffing because they are such huge conversations in hospitality, kind of always, but perhaps especially now. And they're, I guess, society-wide conversations about jobs and skills. I mean, how do you, what changes have you seen through your time in the industry in terms of the way people are trained and, and the way restaurants are, are managing or perhaps not managing to staff themselves? Yeah. Uh, no, with that, I'm going to go back slightly. When I started, there was probably 20 chefs in a kitchen and, you know, there was almost as many on the floor. But the wage growth, the... And so forth. It's been scaled back and scaled back every every year. You've got less and less people to work with, and you need to produce more. Um, so that demand has burned out a lot of the industry. Um, there's restaurants operating now with you know half the staff that they need. The COVID, we lost half. Or we lost a generation of um, service staff, basically. And um, now we have to train the younger kids. I've got my son in there in between uni and we're training him up. He's a food runner. Now he's actually on the floor. We've got some other kids that went to school with him too. So they're 19, 20-year-olds. And it just takes time. You just need to have more of them. And you need to be able to spend time on why you do it a certain way. The worst part is a lot of us have lost that knowledge on the floor to be able to train the younger ones. I mean, it's great that you've got your son and his mates in there, but, I mean, what else do you think can be done? You know, you mentioned your first um, employer was also a TAFE teacher. Do you think those linkages between formal training and the industry are as they should be? Yeah, it's dropped off. Um, I think money got in the way. They've gone to pay for their degree in cooking without the life skill of cooking. So they're in a kitchen learning how to cook. When I was an apprentice, you went to TAFE one day and four days in a kitchen. Now they're full-time full in, uh, in school learning how to cook. And then they come out and get into a kitchen, and that's where the trouble starts. That's where they go, oh, shit, I didn't expect this. And that's the hardest part for the industry at the moment. Um, also, the 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 travellers, Europe is a different. They all know how to serve in Europe. It, it's a profession that is ingrained in of being of service. In Australia, it's not. And so, when the Europe, when a lot of the Europeans and all that come here to travel through, they were great on the floor because they they serve it. They just grew up with it. It's something that's just a normal thing to do. Um, we miss that a lot, and that's the knowledge we're missing on at the moment as well. So to get it back in the kids, one, they've all moved on to do other things anyway in COVID. They all hopped out of the industry. It's a fairly demanding and physical, and they're, they're not that physical anymore, the, the kids of today. Um, yeah, it's going to be tough for a while, I think. Have you, I mean, you sort of talked about the way you create these sort of resonant menus that fit with the place that you're in, but what if the, the um, yeah, the staff aren't there to support yeah. that vision? Uh, no, that, that's very true because um, you can only cook with, same as in the kitchen, you can only cook with what 
abilities you have. Um, so uh, my chefs that are with me in the kitchen, they all got strengths and weaknesses and we all work on our strengths and combine and then we all try to cover our weaknesses together. Um, and that dictates a lot on how I finish a menu as well. So that's, again, that feel of what we can cope um, to do and deliver on the plate consistently all the time. I mean, I guess even that snail dish you mentioned, is it could be an example of that. Yes. Um, yes, exactly. Um, but, again, it's getting the ingredients properly seasoned and cooked before you actually put that dish together. So all the prep work. So I had another young chef trying to do it, and he could not get the consistency right. A, a year and a half still could not get that consistency. Whereas I've got a new chef in there now that just nails it every time. And so, again, that dish is really singing along now. We had to – I or my second chef used to have to always make that dish because his third one couldn't do that consistent. So there's always weaknesses and strengths that you got to deal with um, and work out ways to solve it. Kitchens are problem-solving a lot of the time. Yeah, absolutely. I suppose, you know, one thing that you really can't do without is the, is the desire to be there in the first place. And it's not that everyone needs to be, you know, ex- extremely passionate every minute of every day, but you've got to choose to work in a restaurant. So, I mean, what do you love about what you do? It's, again, it's a sense of occasion. I love creating where people come and just go, wow, that was fantastic. And that to me is just such a warm feeling of I was able to give to them. It's the sense of giving. I'm no good in front of people. I'm no good as a waiter, um, but I'm great at creating a dish to go out to them and then coming out and saying hi. Um, that's why that's my enjoyment of it. Also, working with a farmer, the farmer comes to me and gives me a product and he goes, what do you want to do with that? And I said, good idea. I don't know. <laughs> but I'll come up with something. And just an experiment, just running through the the years of cooking and seeing and the books and everything and just go, well, let's try this. Let's try that until I get something right. Yeah, I love it. Um, well, when you fed me before, you you didn't actually give me a dessert. So why don't we end with that? <laughs> what, are, what are we going to wrap this up with? Uh, well, I've got a brulee. It's classic, but this one is slightly tweaked different, this recipe, where even my French chefs in the kitchen with me are going, well, we haven't seen that recipe before. And when they've made it, they've gone, wow, that's superb. It's just so rich, creamy, and soft. And then I use a little marinette coffee, which is a great coffee roaster just near me. And we infuse a cream with um, coffee beans, so it's a coffee cream brulee. And um, we just do a nice little cocoa uh, crisp that we um, accentuate with just to give you the bitterness to go with the sweetness. Ah, I am totally sold on that, Jeff. That sounds so good. I mean, I just love thinking about that little hint of bitterness coming through with the sweetness and the creaminess. And I guess suppose you've got the bitterness 
of the burnt sugar that sort of plays with the coffee as well. Exactly. And so instead of having a coffee, so I don't sell much coffee because they all have the coffee brulee and then they can sleep at night. So they're quite happy with it. So good. All right. Um, Books flight to Sydney gets to the restaurant. Sounds so good. Um, Jeff, it's been an absolute thrill and a real journey to speak to you today. I'm so grateful for your time and your stories. Um, Thank you so much for sharing with us today on Dirty Linen. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's lovely talking with you. This is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about, hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you. This is...